Hello, GabFest listeners. Help us make Slate even better by filling out our short survey. It'll only take a few minutes, and you can find it at slate.com slash survey. Thank you. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for March 4th, 2021, the I'm Sorry If edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I am in Washington, D.C. Joining me from New Haven, Connecticut, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And from not Manhattan, but somewhere somewhere else, John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Good morning. Hello to you both. You guys are in the same state, aren't you? You're both in Connecticut. That's so exciting. Oh, I thought you meant denial. Oh. Mm. 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 Uh, it's just it's not it's not just a river in egypt yeah heard yeah we're uh we're uh it's true we're in the same state we're getting ever closer on today's GabFest, arp the american rescue plan passed the house on party lines a 1.9 trillion dollar rescue package will arp pass the senate and is arp the right relief bill then and is it the right thing to call it arp <laughs> it's my favorite it's the it's my favorite of those those uh, what do you call them? Acronymical bills. It's it's nice. It's like he's Biden's a dog guy. He likes ARP. ARP. <laughs> then will Andrew Cuomo survive the sexual harassment scandal that is engulfing him? And then we will talk about the assault on voting in state capitals across the country as Republican state legislatures try to restrict voting in many, many different ways. Plus, we will not talk about former Justice Stephen Breyer's dramatic speech denouncing the partisanship of conservative justices on the Roberts Court, his first since his resignation from the Supreme Court, because he has unfathomably not yet resigned and therefore is not giving such a speech. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. The American Rescue Plan, the aforementioned ARP, the Democratic bill to provide $1.9 trillion in COVID relief and other things, has gone to the Senate after a party line passage in the House, or largely party line passage in the House. The bill would do a lot of things. It would send checks to many American families for $1,400. It would extend unemployment aid through the summer. It would provide hundreds of billions of dollars for schools and COVID testing in state and local governments. It would give a expanded child care, child tax credit. It will probably pass because Democrats really have one chance to pass a big bill like this. And Joe Biden really wants it passed, and the country needs something like it. But it won't pass exactly as many Democrats would like. So, John, what are the pieces of this bill which seem safe and which do not seem safe right now? Well, before I answer that, we should say it won't pass the way many Democrats would like because there was never a chance in hell it ever would. Um, we In a 50-50 Senate where you have to get every single Democrat, there was no way that a bill that could pass the House Democratic Conference could be something that all 50 Democratic senators would sign up for. The two pieces that have fallen out of the bill that uh, from its House uh, construction are one is the $15 minimum wage, which is a result of a cho- of a ruling by the Senate parliamentarian, which made it not in order through reconciliation. And then the second is a reduction in the number of families and individuals eligible for the $1,400 direct payment. Basically, the president uh, agreed to 
essentially not send that direct payment to, I think for individuals, the House bill was, if you made over $100,000, you wouldn't get it. Now, the president has agreed to capping it at 80000 And then those numbers uh, are adjusted for whether you have kids or whether you're a couple. But generally, the the ceiling for, the, for getting the $1,400 payment in the Senate is slower than in the House. And that was to keep the support of Senator Sinema and Manchin and maybe a few others in the Democratic ranks who wanted that number to be lower felt like the families that were in those higher income brackets didn't need that payment. So the rest, uh, there will be a lot of fighting and there will be lots and lots of amendments that will be put forward by Senate Republicans trying to create mischief, creating tough votes for Democrats. And then there might be the interesting thing to watch is these Democratic amendments from somebody uh, maybe like Manchin or Cinema or others who will try to pass amendments um, and a $15 minimum wage amendment probably from Sanders or the Sanders wing of the party. And those will be interesting to watch as they come through and senators vote for them because they might destabilize that 50 vote coalition you need for Democrats to pass it. John, isn't it it is true that the Senate parliamentarian had has ruled this $15 minimum wage provision out of compliance with whatever it is, the bird rule. I mean, who the just I don't even get me started. I've already riffed on my distaste for this. Right. But it, it it's kind of not really true that the reason the $15 minimum wage isn't going through is because of the bird rule. It's not well, going through because because a bunch of Democratic senators don't really support it. John Manchin doesn't want a $15 minimum wage, and the parliamentarian's ruling is a way to get around him having to take a vote on it. Well, it's true and it's not true. So what they could do is what Republicans did when the parliamentarian uh, ruled something out of order, which is they fired the parliamentarian. And you get get yourself a new parliamentarian and, and, and make sure the new parliamentarian sees things the way you do. The Democrats could have done that, but then, to your point, David, they wouldn't have gotten 50 votes because they would have lost Manchin and Cinema at least. Um, uh, so they would have done something extraordinary and wouldn't have gotten the benefit. So you're, you're exactly right. I, the, the idea that the parliamentarian is, is doing this at the behest of the Democrats to save Manchin and Cinema a vote, there's no evidence of that. It would be contrary to what the parliamentarian's job is. So it would be a uh, pretty shady thing to do. Uh, and there's reasons that the minimum wage might, you know, that you can argue isn't allowed in reconciliation. So anyway, that's, I think, the, where, this thing's, where things stand. I think as a policy matter, the minimum wage is a really big loss because it's a, you know, permanent change that would really help redistribute wealth. And there's a lot of research at this point showing that the costs are minimal. You know, there's a legitimate concern that if you pay people more, they'll be employed less collectively, like there'll be fewer jobs. But it seems like that is um, a fear that we worry about, like, more than we really have to. So I am really sorry to see that go. I also think that this bill, I, and maybe this is like the uh, grew up in the 80s and 90s, like parsimonious part of me, but I was okay with having it be more targeted. I feel like there is so much money pumping out in this bill. Uh, and there's a reason to not target the $1,400 check too narrowly because you want the bill to be popular. We have lots of evidence from the past that when you give more general benefits like Social Security and Medicare examples, that that actually helps them and helps the party that passed them. But I just feel a little bit nervous, even though I know that, you know, we're supposed to be thinking like, Getting the economy pumping along is the main 
task here and the debt doesn't matter as much as we thought and like the Fed will keep an eye on inflation and what we care about is full employment. But I was personally okay with that change. I don't know what you guys think. Well, uh, I think the the problem with the targeting of the the relief check, the $1,400 relief check, so narrowing it from people making up to $100,000, individuals making up to $100,000 only to individuals making up to 80,000 and it really starts to to uh, fall off at 75,000 is really that there the 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 fade out is so abrupt that it's mm-hmm. one of these things where if you make $74,000 and $74,999 you get all of it and then if you make 80,000 and $1 you get none of it and that's just it's yeah. it, the, these policies work better when they have more tiering and more more fade out and so that so that group of people who between 75 and $100,000 are now you know that's a real large group of people it's a, it's it's in the millions and millions of families and it doesn't save that much money it's only saving 12 billion dollars in this bill so oh. that felt like you know a, as a principle yes narrowing it so, sort of makes sense to to target it to the people who need it most but they're not using the money they're saving for something else better they're just not spending it and the other point i want to make is or adding to what you're just saying emily it is weird to me that basically what we have gotten to is is that the purpose of congress now is to throw huge amounts of money at people just to throw checks at people whether in the form of of child tax credit or or a $1400 relief check or expanded unemployment. It's just like, let's give people money. There's no public policy being made, no no attempt to kind of do things like the minimum wage or very little. There's attempts, but they don't go anywhere because Congress is incapable of passing bills around policy because of the partisanship that's consumed it. And in particular, because Republicans just won't let Democrats do anything like that. And so policy is just made by executive action. And then the job of Congress is to print money. And that's that is certainly uh, it's a way to run a government. <laughs> it is it is not, I think, the way anyone thinks is optimal or the way the founders intended. Let's put it that way. Right. And meanwhile, there's this big voting rights act that's going to pass the House, but is going to probably struggle in the Senate unless they change the filibuster rule. But we don't want to have to rant about that. I just want to say, David, your points about the targeting were convincing to me. Well, this is a little bit of a special case, though, David, although you're right. But I mean, you know, I mean, responding to the pandemic has it has a is slightly different than normal legislation that's passing, but um, but which isn't to defend the way that it's being put together or the way it's being uh, uh, the attempts to undermine it. Senator Ron Johnson has said he's going to have them read the entire bill out loud, um, which means some poor set of clerks are going to have to read the bill to in an attempt to just kind of slow it down. This is an age old trick, but it's kind of stupid, and uh, I mean it's always been stupid. It was stupid when the when they read the League of Nations legislation out loud. The, Does Ron Johnson even have to be on the floor for that entire time? You'd I don't think, think if, so. If you're demanding it, that you'd be the one, you'd have to read it out loud or something. Yeah, you, you would think. You can't um, just go eat your lunch. Right. And your dinner um, and your breakfast the next morning. Yeah, because it's going to take 10 or 12 hours. Um, two of the things that are part of this that interest me is, one, the deadline here is mid-March when expanded unemployment benefits expire. And so what that may mean, I believe, is that so the Senate bill is now different than the House bill. There's not, you know, the process of reconciling the two would take longer than mid-March, which means the expanded unemployment benefits would expire. So I believe the case will be that basically 
the House is going to have to vote on whatever passes the Senate. And obviously, you could imagine a bill, a Senate bill that passes that is so objectionable to liberals in the House that they don't vote for it. I don't know that that's a real possibility, but it's going to be a source of um, of drama. And the other one other point is that the Republicans are barking about the state and local uh, $360 billion going to state and local governments and arguing basically the states don't need that. They're either arguing they don't need the money or they don't need that much money. One thing that's been interesting but hard to tease apart is actually the states did not take, some states did not take as big a hit as they had expected. Basically, states that relied on tourism um, took a big hit. States that relied on sales tax and had enough uh, residents who were making money on, on the, in the market did well. Some stayed flat even relative to 2019. But what is incredibly maddening about th- those figures, one, is, is there's still about a $300 billion shortfall through 2022. So that's still a, you know, a lot of money that um, states in the aggregate need. And secondly, all the stories I read about this didn't talk about the increased spending as a result of managing COVID-19. And so it was incredibly frustrating to hear that, hey, the revenue side wasn't as bad as we thought. But that's only half the picture in terms of why states need to have money. I'm so glad you pointed that out. And I see the unevenness of the way that states took a hit for the pandemic. And I just really don't care. I think state and local governments being solvent is really important and have been worrying a lot in my own state, which has struggled with some of these issues for a long time. And I feel like, frankly, just having a reason to give money to state and local government because they can't spend like the federal government can. They have to balance their budgets every year. It's a much more constrained operation. And so I think this is a good thing for that reason. And Also, I think it's worth distinguishing state and local governments because local governments face a kind of real looming catastrophe. The local governments that that have depended, as most city governments do, on the tax revenue from commercial real estate and the tax revenue from local retail and especially sort of urban, downtowny urban activity are in a about to be in a terrible state because the, the office work is not coming back. Those rents and the kind of taxes being paid on those commercial office buildings are, are not going to be paid at the rates they were. And that's a huge portion of a lot of city budgets. And that's going to be a big hit that needs to be a big gap that needs to be filled. And should we also say about the money for schools, you know, since we've talked a lot on this show about schools, like that should be helpful for getting them open again. And that also is really I, important. The ones that are closed. I actually have a question about that. Can, yes. I, can we... Uh, so I read that, and I, I didn't do enough reading on it to have an, an educated opinion, so I have an ignorant opinion. And <laughs> let me share my ignorant My ignorant opinion is looking at it, the money to improve ventilation systems, reduce class size, buy PPE, and implement social distancing. Isn't this like a, another horse out of barn situation? That, that by the time this money gets to schools, we're talking about September, it's not that those things are completely unnecessary, but that we're relying really on massive vaccination and a and a stop of sort of spread through the population. We're not relying as much. These other things are not as important. And the idea of spending hundreds of billions of dollars on that, as opposed to, say, raising teachers' salaries or whatever it is, is slightly uh, discordant to me. Why am I wrong? Not wrong. I think you might John. not be wrong. I will say I did just think to myself that improving ventilation systems could be good in the long run for, you know, kids with asthma, for all Maybe. the problems. In my city, they Maybe. haven't been cleaning the filters in the schools in these nice new buildings, and that was a minor 
scandal last week, so I sort of thought, ah. But yeah, I did wonder about the horse out of the barn problem. I guess I was hoping that they have some flexibility. I mean, reducing class size can be a good thing across the board as well. But yes, increasing teacher salaries, salaries for school staff, I think would be a really good use of some of that money, personally. Yeah, I think they do have a little flexibility. Um, but, you know, to your previous point, David, there's a school component to it as well, which is that the you were talking about the out-year um, costs to uh, towns that are you know going to basically have a different economy after COVID nineteen than the one they had before. School districts have to deal with the gap, uh, you know, the lost year essentially. So you know, some are trying to have robust summer school programs to try to help with what kids lost during the year that they were doing school virtually. Um, there are a lot of costs that that will be associated or could be associated with trying to help make up for the lost year. And those those will be costs that, that would be incurred or would they need money for in the in the years to come. Whereas as you're quite right, some of the um, you know, buying a bunch of masks after well, I guess we're gonna be wearing masks for a while, but um dealing money spent as if this were a year ago or money allocated as if this were a year ago is not gonna go for the same things as it as it would today. Slate plus members get Benefits on Slate, zero ads on any of our podcasts, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and, of course, bonus segments on our show. You go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today. Our bonus segment this week is going to be, what was the moment that you knew this virus, this pandemic, this disease, this situation was different, was going to upend the world? What was our the moment? There's a hashtag, the moment. We're going to talk about our the moments. Again, $1 for the first month of Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is teetering now in his third term. He has had a bumpy last 12 months. He was lionized last year for his straight talk 
pandemic briefings early in the pandemic. He is now beset by scandal. Turns out his administration withheld data about the death of nursing home residents to mislead COVID deaths, to mislead the Trump administration, apparently, and to make themselves look better. Now, more urgently for him at the moment, he has been credibly accused of harassment and sexually assaultive behavior, I guess. I've, what, what's, I don't know what it is when you, like an unwilling kiss, is that, what does that count as? Technically, the word assault means touching someone who doesn't want yeah. to be touched. Well, yeah. assault and battery. Right, I thought assault, you, I thought you could assault without touching them. Assault is the intent, is the threat, right? And battery is the act. Yes, yeah. and it All is right. just touching. So I suppose very technically. But I think when most people hear the term sexual assault, they... Well, at least right, but I, I just don't know what the right term because it's more than just it's more than just like words. It's he's done something physical to to these. Yeah, it's confusing. Women. He's accused of that, although he that is the thing he denies. Anyway, multiple women, three women, including two in his employ, effectively in the employ of the state of New York, uh, have accused him, and he has now apologized in a way. He apologized. He said he was sorry if. Uh, then I think he said, "I'm sorry," like more full on, and I'm embarrassed. Right? Instead yes. of I resigned. Right. His first one was, he says, I acknowledge some of the things I've said have been misinterpreted as an unwanted flirtation. To the extent anyone felt that way, I'm truly sorry about that, which is, I'm sorry if your feelings were, if you feel, yep. if you were upset. I mean, it's just like the classic non-apology. I hate that apology so much. He, he, he said, I mean, yeah, you know, I don't know. This is a better apology than most of these apologies, to be honest. The second well, no, one the was ultimate, better, not the, the ultimate I apology. I truly deeply apologize for it, yeah. Right, that was the ultimate one. He, Although he, he does say it was unintentional. One. It was unintentional. Like, it's not unintentional to kiss someone. It's not unintentional to kind of, like, you know, talk them up in hopes that they're going to be respond respond to your overture. Yes, it's a very That's narrow use of the intentional. word unintentional. Uh, it was unintentional. Unsuccessful, to, maybe, unsuccessful. is what he meant. Yes. <laughs> I did, did not intend for I you. I apologize for my unsuccessful advances. I did not intend for you to be horrified and complain about it publicly. So <laughs> I did not intend for my advances. No, there is a, I'm just going to say one thing, though. This whole thing of unwanted advances, and I'm not defending him. I'm making a more general statement. It is a little tricky. Like, how do you know an advance is unwanted until you advance it like anyway right yeah. no that's a, that is a really good question although but if it is a a a, a woman in your employee oh, yes, that's a different somebody who works for you and i i know that you know these were all adult women they were all you know of age they're everyone's everyone's an adult but like maybe it's maybe it's just so puritanical of me or something but there's something like extremely yucky about a 63 year old man doing this to 25 year old women when they also when the power divide is so extremely vast completely agree it's even even though again everyone is they had the capacity to consent which they did not so john cuomo appears to be trying to do a, a, a northam that's the governor of virginia who did not resign and northam wrote out the scandal in virginia basically because my read was that his lieutenant governor who would have been a perfectly credible justin fairfax replacement justin fairfax and engulfed an even worse scandal and so they sort of they they made a pact where they both wrote it out together nobody got to advance their career and they the democrats just decided we're going to hold our nose and let this let's let this pass uh, is cuomo going to be able to to ride it out do you think we're redefining what write it out means because um, what's 
Virginia also has a single term for the governor, which matters, I think, because Northam would have run for reelection if there was a second or there would have been that issue if there could have been a second term for him. So we're in the we're in this moment where riding it out means, you know, what is the pressure you feel within your own party and what is the pressure your party exerts on you? I mean, I, in 2017, the Democratic Party ejected Al Franken immediately and um and and then he accepted that and accepted the the sort of the norm. In this case, it's been kind of light on Cuomo. I mean, light certainly by his own standards. Remember when the the Attorney General of New York, Schneiderman, was um, was accused of of worse behavior, more abusive behavior. I think that's fair. Yes. Somebody tell me if I'm wrong. But what's important as we sort through all of this is that in that instance, Cuomo not only um, appointed somebody to investigate the allegations, but he said the brave women who chose to come forward deserve swift and definitive justice in this matter. So you have two things. It's what to do with the person, whether they did what they did and and what the sanctions should be. But then also there's the question of listening to women, which is at play here. Um, and that's all being decided and def- redefined because I think there is some rethinking in some quarters about the, the response to Al Franken but there's no question by the previous, by the 2017 standard, Cuomo should be getting denounced by basically all Democratic officials, probably all the way up into the president. So I aligned myself with Dahlia Lithwick, who wrote a really good piece this week, saying the fact that Cuomo has agreed to an investigation and that we're waiting for the results of that to decide what the consequences should be is a good development. And... Um, that's my current way of reconciling my own ambivalence about this. I think the other issue that's kind of lurking here is the difference between relatively minor offenses and bigger ones and how to define that and who gets to define it. People of different, I don't know what, like I think women and men just disagree about this. And because there's no, you know, criminal code of like, sexual harassment in the fifth degree versus the first degree, and we've never uh, had any kind of set of rules exactly, it's really hard to decide, and it's sort of a moving target as well, right? I mean, 10 years ago, it would have been much harder for a politician of the stature to get in trouble for this stuff, right? And so I think it's good that there is uh, a reckoning. I don't think that, you know, men should go around propositioning their aides or, like, being grabby, which is how I take that kind of leering photo. And yet, I really think it's important to have some kind of way of thinking about minor versus major offenses. And so an investigation is an appealing way to like begin to um, parse all of that. A a couple of points. One is, I do think like it is now kind of clearly the price of entry in democratic politics, not in Republican politics, in democratic politics, to not be a grabby, lecherous creep. It's just clear that if you're going to be a grabby, lecherous creep, this party doesn't want you, or it shouldn't. I feel like that that, that is, that is it doesn't, and it, this doesn't necessarily apply for Republicans, and Republicans are, there's a, there are different standards there, and we've seen that with the various Republicans who've survived scandals that would have taken down Repub- uh, Democrats around this issue. Cuomo... If he, after 2017, if he doesn't realize that this has changed, you know, shame on him. It was obvious to me. It was obvious to to everyone following politics. Like, yes, you were allowed to get away with this for a number of years. Not anymore, my friend. It's just not doable. That's point one. So does that mean he resigned? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
I don't know. No, point two is the this, this investigation point is a really good one, although it, it's, a, it's, it's right. And I, I think that is the right answer ultimately, Emily. But I've been struck, John, I don't know if you've been following this, the Washington football team investigation. A little bit. The Washington football team uh, has this just diabolically wicked owner, Dan Snyder. And, it, and it's, been a, it's just been a den of sexual harassment and grotesque behavior, like the the, the the way the cheerleaders were treated is it's like out of something out of the worst 1950s thing you can possibly imagine. I mean, just it's gross. What that team has kind of done is like they've kept having investigation after investigation. The investigations have gone on and on and on. I think what's happened is if you let the investigations go on long enough, people sort of forget, like they, they've moved on. And I, my worry is like if, it, if, if Cuomo gets to push this to an investigation, it becomes six weeks, two months later, and everyone's focusing on something else. And like, well, yes, but he's got to deal with these issues. And, and let's, let's, uh, let's, let's not rehash. We've rehashed the past enough. Let's move on. That's the, 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 the mob mentality is dangerous, but so is losing the energy that the mob mentality creates. That's interesting. Yeah. One, one thing that we should um, mention here that's also a part of this and, and presumably will be at the center of the investigation is not just his behavior, but when um, Charlotte Bennett, who was the 25-year-old former aide who Cuomo asked a series of these um, questions about her sex life and so forth, that were, she reported it to, uh, by her account, immediately to the chief of staff, and then she was reassigned or transferred. Bad. So that's bad. So one thing is the behavior, so that we have to figure out. But then if there is a system that doesn't treat these things seriously or treats them um, as a new expense. Yeah, it's retaliation. That's the big thing to keep an eye on here. To to Emily's excellent point about the gradations of behavior here, it's more important than ever to get those gradations right because the truly predatory behavior, the multiple instances, the the far more aggressive uh, grabbing and touching and so forth is not in the same category. But the only way to adjudicate all those individual places is to have some system to do that. And if somebody says something that's, you know, boorish and over the line and you can stop it because there's a system in place to stop it when it starts, then then you can kind of address these things in a way that doesn't lead to a point where you're basically having the same process for adjudicating category two violations as category five violations. That's a really good point. I just want to say one more thing, which is I really salute these three women. There yes. is a way, and right? Like they came forward. They're very straightforward. They don't take a whole bath of shame, which they have no reason to feel ashamed. I think there's something generational about this, like, or at least I'll speak for myself. I would not have been so brave. And I really feel like my generation, or again, at least me, has a lot to learn from moments like this. So thank you to these three women. Indeed. So brave. H.R. 1 is a bill that will pass the House of Representatives that massively expand voting rights new kinds of federal guidance and control on voting and try to take away some of the chaos and distress that that has happened for people who wish to vote in the recent years. It will pass the House, Democrats will vote for it, and it will almost certainly not pass the Senate unless there's filibuster reform. Even then, it probably won't pass the Senate because not every Democrat supports it. However, at the same time, there's this effort by Democrats to expand voting rights. There is a huge 
wave of legislation moving through state legislatures around the country, Republican legislatures generally, to roll back voting rights, to massively limit absentee voting, voting by mail, drop boxes, ballot harvesting, early voting. It is a clear, obvious effort to de- prevent people from voting because there is a strong belief that that Democratic voters are more likely to be deterred by those restrictions than Republican voters. And it is a also a clear effort to confirm or to to compound these baseless, disgusting, heavily damaging claims that Republicans made in the wake of the 2020 presidential election that the election was not to be trusted and had been somehow stolen. So Emily, I know you've been following these issues really closely. Give us a sense of the variety of state measures and and which ones are likely to happen. It's going to be, I assume, in states that have Republican legislatures and Republican governors. Yes, I assume that as well, for the most part. Um, So according to the Brennan Center at NYU, there are more than 250 bills in 43 states. And it's everything from making it harder to vote absentee, making it harder to register to vote, taking away the lists that automatically send ballots to people once they've requested them once, taking away days of early voting, eliminating the possibility of having other people collect your ballot. It's like, and and stricter voter ID laws in a number of states that somehow don't already have them. So what you're seeing here is just a kind of eating away to make it harder for people to vote. And in the Supreme Court argument this week about two voting restrictions in Arizona, there was a kind of amazing moment where the lawyer for the Arizona Republican Party, when asked why, why don't you want people to be able to cast a ballot at one precinct, even if it's not their precinct, and have it provisionally counted if they are indeed a voter, he said that, proportionally speaking, that hurts Republicans. And that's why he doesn't want those people to have a little slack in how they vote, because disproportionately, the people who cast ballots at the wrong precincts are Democrats. Now, we should also say this is because they are constantly moving polling places around in Arizona, which is confusing for people. Uh, This has happened to me. You can definitely show up at the wrong place for unless you're paying super close attention. And that's just a lot to ask of people. So, you know, I think what we're seeing here is a kind of aftermath of the 2020 November election, which was an incredibly clean election. But all of President Trump's claims about fraud, stealing, etc., which other Republican officials are continuing to repeat, are bearing this, you know, in my view, quite evil fruit of just constricting the democracy. There was a lot of voting by mail. It went well. What we should be doing is making it easier to continue that because it has a small effect on voter participation, a beneficial effect. It has not been shown to have a partisan effect in the past. And yet Republicans remain convinced that if fewer people vote, that's going to help them. It also, I mean, just to pick up on this idea of of the bad fruit from the president's lie that the election was stolen. Fruit of a poison tree, John? Yeah. Well, it's the... That's yes. not. I just I, you just love that phrase. No, I love that phrase. I did, but I didn't. I chose. I chose not to become an arborist. Um, aphorist, arborist. Anyway, aphorism, arborist. Anyway, the cost of letting the president lie for as long as he did. We've talked about the market. What what all these bills allow is for Republicans who, if when pressed, won't necessarily say the election was stolen, but nevertheless recognize there's a lot of energy in the the voters they want 
along those lines, this is the safe place to be. It's like putting forward a the guy yells fire in a crowded theater. There is no fire. And then all of his legislative friends say, well, maybe no fire, but let's pass lots and lots of theater fire management bills. Right. Which is all is exists on the energy of the false fire that was created. And this is the, the sort of uh, apex of this is Vice President Mike Pence who was the most directly targeted public official from the big lie, nevertheless publishing a, uh, I guess it was an op-ed or, or talking about election security this week. So the person who was most directly potentially harmed, as people said, hang Mike Pence by the big lie, is nevertheless finding safe harbor in talking about uh, you know the scourge of, of election fraud. And talking about which, troubling pattern of voting irregularities, which is like, exactly. oh my God. Which is, which is an effort to try to plug into the same energy that, that got people wanting him hanged. It's, it's, so it's another, it's, it's another huge cost from people not speaking up when the big lie was first uncorked. And, and it's just another way in which we see the, the future party creating an entire arena which may not be directly about the big lie, but which would not exist but for the big lie. I realize it's naive, but I just makes me sad that we can't all agree that more people voting is good. And yes, we should prevent fraud. But most of these laws have really zero to do with that. And we have a lot of evidence in that regard at this point. Emily, it is so easy to get lost in the lists, the Brennan Center's lists of different kinds of restrictions and the provisions of H.R. 1, the 791-page bill that is H.R. 1, the expansionary provisions there. Can you just, you, you've looked at these issues for a while. What are the two expansions in voting that have the most effect in encouraging people to vote? And what are the two restrictions in voting that have the most deterrent effect on people? Ooh, I feel like I should have been prepared to take a quiz. Well, uh, helpful provision, automatic voting registration. I think that would be huge if just every time you went to get a driver's license or get one renewed, they just put you on the voting rolls because then you don't have to deal with that ticky-tack task and you're just there. And I think the second answer is the kind of corollary to that, which is to prevent purges of the voting rolls that are not done very carefully with the burden on the state or locality to prove that the person has moved or has died, right? I mean, we have now Supreme Court law that makes it pretty easy to purge a lot of people who turn out to be legitimate voters. I think those are the two most important things. I'm sure other people would have different ideas. In terms of the bevy of restrictions, I'm not sure this is the most impactful, but I'm really distressed that we're going to make it harder to vote by mail after we had an election in which there was such a surge and that went well. And the states that have, you know, essentially universal voting by mail, which include the red state of Utah, have had a lot of success with doing this and very little fraud. And I just think it would be a really good change in the United States. The other thing that would really affect participation, which I know is not on, in H.R. 1 and not even on the radar in the United States, but I'm going to throw it out anyway, is mandatory voting. It would be illegal at this point because of federal law, I think, for a state or a city to say you get a tax benefit for voting. But I wish we didn't have that law. I wish just the pure act of voting. And you don't have to vote. You can leave it blank. You can write in your mom. But I wish we had a kind of incentive system 
Australia has much higher voting participation than we do, and they fine people for not voting. I would rather give them a little carrot than a stick. But anyway, this is more in the realm of, um, you know, platonic Emily Bazelon policy than reality. Would, would it pass muster to have something which said, if you show up on election day and stand in a line, which also happens to be line to vote, and at the end of, if you do that through the end of that line, we're going to give you a $15 tax benefit or a $200 tax benefit. Like, would that be legal? Like, you haven't required anyone to vote. You've just said, show up at this day, at this place, and you'll have stood in this line. Then you could, then you can vote, too. I mean, I guess you could try it. I sort of feel like it's pretty obvious that <laughs> what you're really doing, and there is, like, a kind of uh, smell test for things like that in courts, but sure, mm. why not? I wish some city would try to figure out how to get around this federal law. I feel like you're right. Some clever lawyer could find some way to offer some incentive that would be a good start. I'm, there's a GabFest listener. If if our audience does not have that clever lawyer in it, I will. Right, seriously. Eat my and shoe. obviously, we shouldn't have the parties be able to bribe voters to come to support them. We're talking about just voting, and it doesn't have to be voting for a candidate on the slate. Just the act of participating. Yeah, no, you I'm know, saying just, you don't even have to vote. I'm just saying you're like you happen to stand on yes, this line, you have and to it's show like up just so easy place. to then. <laughs> but maybe we shouldn't have people standing in line for very long either. Anyway. There's an interesting strategic question, at least I think it's interesting, um, for Democrats here, because the one of the reasons Republicans are trying, um, I mean, there are lots of reasons, but one of the benefits, I should say, for Republicans raising all of these questions about the integrity of the vote is that it's it works really well with their with the voters they want to turn out in 2022. It's like cancel culture, and it's basically all these other people the others, the people in the box of, of uh, you know, behaviors and colors and types that you don't like are sneaking in and voting against you. And that's incredibly motivating. Um, so the Republicans, even if they lose the battle in some way, like this to be a big national fight. So if you're a Democrat and you want these reforms to pass and the big, the big benefit would be a big national conversation about these reforms Maybe it wouldn't pass, but it would help tee up a lot of issues that you think are important and might and might begin the slow roll towards actual reform. Maybe get the president involved. Do you want that for all those reasons when you know the the it, it will essentially be a turnout mechanism for your up for the opponents um, and perhaps an even more powerful turnout mechanism for your opponents than for your side? I don't know what the answer to that is. And even the premise upon which that question is based might have some ricketiness in it. But it um, it uh, it interests me. So I just want to note the Supreme Court case this week because it's one of the biggest election cases in the decade. It's about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is the maining provision, and how what the test should be for having to prove a violation of this part of the Voting Rights Act and this is a big question because we lost the other part of the Voting Rights Act that had the Justice Department in the role of pre-approving things like closing polling places. And so now what's left is this after-a-fact ability to sue if the vote has been abridged or denied to African-American or Hispanic or language community voters like Native Americans. 
in the Supreme Court arguments this week, in some ways it seemed like the parties weren't that far away from each other for what the test should be, some kind of substantial effect on a minority group, except I should say for the Republican Party of Arizona, which wanted the standard to be that basically any race-neutral voting regulation would pass muster, no matter what disparate effect it had on those groups. But what I think really is very likely to come from this conservative majority is a ruling that makes it much harder to sue, that you're going to have to show a substantial effect that has nothing to do with socioeconomics, for example, that they're just going to really raise the bar here. And I should note that Chief Justice John Roberts has been a longtime interest of his since he was a Supreme Court clerk. He's the author of Shelby County, which gutted the other part of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. And so this is one where it looks like uh, the liberals on the court are probably going to lose and it's going to be quite a big deal. So one to watch. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are sitting perhaps with a spring breeze over you. I was able to go on the deck of my building yesterday and have a drink on the deck of my building. It was a cocktail on the drink of my building. I was able to chatter with my son on the deck of my building. What would you chatter about, John Dickerson, if you had the chance to chatter outside? On the deck of your building. On the deck of my building. It would be with me, I hope. I know. It would be lovely. Um, my chatter is about... Um, the civics test, um, the Biden administration announced that it'll begin using the 2008 version of the civics test, uh, which is the test you take to become a citizen. The Trump administration changed the citizenship test. They had made it a little harder. They'd changed some of the questions. The argument was that the Trump administration had made it harder as a way to limit immigration. Uh, and now the Biden administration is is uh, changing it to make it make that a little bit easier and more fair. But what struck me when I took the test, first of all, everybody should take the test at the, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services test, because it's um, we've talked about this before. It's sort of amusing the questions they ask. And also you kind of wonder, what are they wanting people to know about those tests? I mean, some of it is is to our conversation about voting rights is things like what month do we vote for president? So it's if you want citizens to be engaged, it's a good thing for them to know when the voting takes place, although you'd have to um, really work on your disconnecting from society to not know that we vote for president in, in November. But anyway, I came across one question, though, which I thought was particularly amusing. Question number 16, what is the rule of law? A, government does not have to follow the law. B, everyone must follow the law. C, everyone but the president must follow the law. So in contemporary, <laughs> in contemporary times, this may or may not um, throw those who are studying for the citizenship test. And so what I really wanted was those who were practicing with this online version, I wish that they kept records of people's responses. And I wonder if there would, based on contemporary events or perhaps the last four years, um, have been a change in the way people responded to that. And then it made me think maybe we should have a national citizenship test for the, for the purposes of just gauging knowledge and, and so that you could chart things like this, not for, I mean, just for the, for the purpose of learning, not for the purpose of anything that you'd have to do. Anyway, so that was what I would be chattering about. Emily, what's your chatter? We can force people to take a civics test, right, as we show, force them to show up in line at the polls. That's what they'll do while they're standing there. We have lots of exciting tasks for people this week. Um, <laughs> I have a fun chatter and a more serious one. I'm going to start with the more serious one, which is that I was so interested to see this week that 
Uh, more than 250 scientists and social scientists asked the Biden administration to advocate to decriminalize sex work. And what's interesting about this is the consensus. When I wrote about this a few years ago, there was just a huge fight going on among social scientists. And it did seem like the people who were making harm reduction and other arguments in favor of decriminalization had the better evidence. But this suggests that the debate has really moved in that direction. And the argument that these scientists and social scientists are making is that the federal government's trafficking prevention budget is being used almost exclusively to arrest consensual adult sex workers instead of to detect coercion or to assist victims. And that's the key distinction here, right? That we should be preventing trafficking and coercion and any involvement of uh, children and teenagers under the age of 18. But this reality that we have, this very expensive federal operation that actually ends up catching in its net people who are doing sex work for a living is uh, something these social scientists think like enough. And so it'll be interesting to see if the Biden administration actually takes any action in response. Switching gears entirely to a different subject. Um, I met, so to speak, on Zoom this week, this lovely writer I had not encountered before named Nafisa Thompson Spires. And so then I downloaded her book. She has this wonderful book of short stories from 2018 called Heads of the Colored People. And I'm just enjoying it so much. It has this really propulsive churning energy. And I've only read a couple of the stories so far, but I really recommend it. So Heads of the Colored People by Nafisa Thompson Spires. All right, my chatter is uh, put a little work into this one. Oh, I'm so excited for this. But maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't want to set you up. No. <laughs> yeah, don't. Forget that. Don't so, raise expectations. Okay. I, we, we talked about talking about the cancellation of Dr. Seuss, uh, the, the Dr. Seuss controversy. We decided not to talk about it, but I decided to chatter about it. Here we go. He's called Teddy or Geisel or Wise Dr. Seuss. He drew cats and some hats and one big-hearted moose. And his poems, stupendous, stupendous, stuororous, we hailed his fine rhymes, all of us in a chorus. From a magnanimous pachyderm with impeccable hearing, to his battling butterers, apocalypse-fearing, Seuss bewitched all lib parents with his views pioneering. Ted's for peace and for trees and for love, they said cheering. Then one day in one house, a house oh so sweet, a sharp-eyed young mom sat with tots at her feet and opened a Seuss book prepared for a treat and to think what she saw on that Mulberry Street. Yes, she saw cops and parades and those old-timey dramas, but also some drawings not fit for hip mamas or anyone really, not kids, dads, or llamas. Old-timey drama? Nah, old-timey racist, appealing to stereotypes the worst and the basest. Seuss drew two Chinese people and hats oh so conical, not funny, not clever, and oh so not comical. Six books now deep sixed, it seems the right action, but look over there at the right satisfaction. The rights in a frenzy from Shapiro to Fox. This Fox, I should note, loves its stocks more than socks. Ted's been canceled, they say, fear the mobbish blue flocks. Before they come for Mo Sendak, let's change all the locks. Fox shouts, don't be woke, you should just be awake. But before we go, friends, I've got one last hot take. Oh, poor dear Dr. Seuss, yes, he made a mistake. We all do, you do, mistakes we all make. But we can ditch those six tales and not fully forsake 
his books with red fish and that hat cat on break. That was really <laughs> pretty that amazing. Was, I, think, I think that should be published in some form. Um, <laughs> I was really, just so much fun. Oh doing my god, it. you so are so fun. good at that. That was just so much fun. I just re-listened to one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish because I was going back and looking at the books, audio books that I bought for the kids many, many, many years ago on this old device, and it was transporting. Yeah. Right. Blackfish, bluefish, oldfish, newfish. Right. And we can fish get fish rid of the bad, the six car. books. Like, that's okay. It's just a small yeah. part of the oeuvre. Oeuvre, however you say that. Oeuvre. 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 Um, I am sad to lose On Beyond Zebra, which is... Oh, really? I'd never even heard of I, On Beyond Zebra. Oh, it's really... It's a, it's the writer's book. Mm. It's a book for writers. Um, but I, I haven't... I didn't investigate. Well, I'm sure I, I trust that there's something really not good in it. The, the Mulberry Street one is... Not good. Dear listeners, you have sent us chatter. Please keep them coming. Please tweet them to us at at SlateGabFest. And we are getting the chance to hear you do your chatter. And this week's listener chatter is from Lily Shield. Let's hear from Lily. Hi, Slate. My name is Lily. I live in Barcelona. And my listener chatter is a very important piece of investigative journalism from the nation by the badass reporter Amy Littlefield, who, full disclosure, is a good friend of mine. It's called, As the Pandemic Raged, Abortion Access Nearly Flickered Out. Littlefield makes the case that while abortion access has been under attack since long before COVID-19, the pandemic has been like a preview of the imminent end of Roe versus Wade. States like Texas have used COVID as a ruse to stop clinics from providing abortions. In South Dakota, abortion services went dark for a full seven months. The legal battles over these bans have caused abortion care to go from legal to illegal and back again, even as patients are sitting in clinics waiting for their appointments. Alongside the chaos and despair these bans have caused are quiet stories of heroism from people on the ground and online who have continued to fight to make sure patients can access the abortions they need. One story that stands out is of a patient who was pushed to 26 or 27 weeks of pregnancy because she couldn't get the money together for an abortion. And when she finally did get the money together, her car broke down. Activists on the ground somehow managed to get a private pilot to fly her from Montana to Colorado, where she could finally have her abortion. Thank you for that chatter and for that story in the nation, which sounds important and necessary, and I will go read. I just want to note that for people who are seeking abortions and having trouble accessing services where they live, there are abortion pills that you can order online. This is not necessarily the ideal way to have abortion services in the United States of America, but the organization ifwhenhow.org has resources on the legality of self-managed abortion and a legal helpline as well, which can help women and people in this situation. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth, June Thomas, and Leisha Montgomery are the power brain trust of Slate Audio and Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and Theodore Geisel, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. It is now, where it is today? March 4th. Um, it is now a year, basically, since the pandemic started, as we've all learned. And there has been this hashtag going around the various uh, interwebs, 
hashtag the moment, the moment when we realized everything changed. So we're going to do our the moment. What was it like to be back in late winter of 2020 as this terrible disease began to spread throughout the world and the realization that the world was going to be different? So anyone want to start? So I remember when I posted something from a New York Times article that said, basically, don't travel uh, if you don't have to. And I was confused because I thought the guidance at the moment was don't travel if you're in one of the groups that might be in danger. But this was suggesting you shouldn't travel no matter who you were. And so I posted something on Twitter and Andrew Ross Sorkin, among others, responded and said, don't travel. Community spread is real. And that was the moment where I thought, it's more severe than maybe we think, and also that um, we've got to reset our understanding of, of the advice we're getting because it's going to be confusing. And so, um, you know, we've got to kind of seek out three or four pieces of information before you take action. That was That's the moment where I thought that, that I associate with the complete change in life. And the other was being at 60 Minutes. This is almost about the same time in the office, and we had some people who got early cases of COVID. Everybody's okay now. But they shut, they said, you know, go home. And that was the last time I was at work. So that was a year ago. I mean, physically in the building. Emily. Yeah. Uh, so one of my kids was taking a class last year, just by coincidence, on global pandemics. And I think that saved me from denialism, which is in the beginning of any risky situation, my go-to posture. So I had this awareness of like, hmm, this really could be something. I can't just pretend it's not going to be. And in the second week of March, this is really next week, I was trying to plan a birthday party for my husband, whose birthday is in the middle of March. And it went from being like a full-on birthday party to where I like ordered all the food to being like, huh, maybe we really can't do this to realizing that we absolutely couldn't do it. And when I called it off, I got all these <laughs> messages that were like, oh, thank God. Like, we couldn't come. Of course, we weren't going to come. But like, we felt bad about not coming. So thank you so much for canceling it. And I think that was my main awareness. Although I did have this one other moment. The last time I went to New York uh, last spring was on March 10th. And I actually went to a public event, which took place, which I still really can't believe in Brooklyn. And I kept thinking they were going to cancel it and they didn't. And when I got on to Metro North to come home, the train station was already just semi deserted and there were people in masks. And I realized that I was not going to be back in New York for a really long time getting on that train. And I just had this sense of total foreboding. Um, that I was glad to be going home. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.